Uh, hey, Mike. Hey. Welcome to te- uh, what? What's this show called? Oh boy, this is gonna be good. Divergent opinions. Yeah. That's are you are you seeing another podcast? I am. What? <laughs> well, I have the other podcast that predates this one. You guys don't still do it, do you? We did an episode uh, a couple weeks ago to see if we still wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> what was the What was the determination? Yeah. It It might be one that only works when we're both in person. We'll see. Mm. Um. Anyways. So how's your week going? How was your holiday? Good. Relaxing. Cold. Wet. Yeah. Now you're back in sunny San Francisco. Exactly. Oh wait, I just got a I just got a thing here from Mike Cal. We're supposed to podcast today. Yeah, I just got that too. It's a funny coincidence how that worked out. Um so the industry's sort of in holiday mode, I guess, the uh the wider world in which we exist. Which is to say that there's not going to be a lot of exciting news. Um, some things are starting to ship. Some things are not shipping. So this week I thought we'd just sort of walk through a few things that are out there and a few things that aren't out there. If that makes sense. No, it doesn't. So let's just get into it. <laughs> I don't have a link for this, but uh, as of today, pricing for the uh, the Sony 4K cameras that we talked about last week, the F5 and the F55 came out today, and they're uh, surprising. They're all sub-2,000. Sub-20,000. Uh, that's not bad. Um, yeah, they're surprisingly affordable. The, that's without glass, right? Mm, I don't know. I didn't look that closely. I'm not in the market. I think they come with glass, don't they? Wow. That's a good deal. I, I think I uh, insta-papered it. Let me... I'm getting back into that. I'm going to be a shooter. That'd be fun. Yeah. Now there's finally enough resolution. Yeah. The thing I dislike about post and programming is that I don't have to ever wake up early or sleep in hotels. Well. I know. This would be my opportunity. Yes. Yes. Um, I don't see the pricing handy. It was on Twitter, and you know how Twitter is. So, uh, anyways, um, there were a few links we'll throw in our show notes, just, um, some interesting camera related things that came out in last week or so. There's an interesting piece on shooting with the Canon C500, um, which is a very powerful camera with a workflow to match. Um, but, uh, some interesting thoughts from, uh, someone actually using the camera on set and talking about the pros and cons of the workflow and, um, as it compares to the C300, uh, which everyone across the board seems to pretty much love. Right. Um, Philip Bloom has done a series of tutorials on the Sony FS100. I believe this was funded by Sony, um, but those are interesting as well. And then also from Philip Bloom this week, he did a sort of massive article on breaking down the current camera landscape. Um, it's called which camera to buy. And he goes through from digital SLRs on up through, um, he doesn't sort of go as high as the Alexas, but goes on up through the F5s and, uh, F55s and, and all that jazz, um, sort of walking through what he thinks of the different options and who they're good for, um, and why you might pick one over the other. So that was a really good piece. It's always nice when someone takes the time to step back and, and survey the landscape like that. Yeah. I haven't read this one. Yeah, um, it's a good uh, good hunk of writing. I mean, he's sort of sticking to cameras he's got personal experience with, so there's a lot of the newer and, and more exciting cameras that he has to defer and say, you know, this looks really good, but I haven't used it yet, so I can't make a recommendation. But that's sure. better better that than the alternative. Right. Um, 
But I thought maybe this week we could really dive in on some cameras that aren't shipping. Uh-huh. First, can we can I comment on the yeah. manufacturer colon dash typesetting in this thing? Oh, in Philip Bloom's thing? Yeah. Let me pull it up here. I don't have it handy. It's like red colon dash. Yeah, that, a is a weird. Weird. that must be a British thing. Yeah, He's maybe. British, right? Yeah. Maybe it's a CMS or something. It's sort of it's like, like a, a face without a mouth. Yeah. Okay. It's a good thought, though. Huh? It's a good thought, though. You're really on fire today. Okay, what are we what are we talking about today? Let's get on to this. So there's two cameras out there, both about the same price. Um which is to say unavailable. Well, you can give them their money now. They are? They're both taking pre orders? I know that yeah. Digibolex is, but Yeah, so the the two we're talking about, the Black Magic Cinema camera. Oops. And the Digibolex. So the Blackmagic Cinema camera is and has been sort of shipping since July. Um, and for those who don't remember, it made a big splash at NAB this year as a $2,500 2.5K or 2.7K camera with a funny form factor and a funny workflow. Um, so they started shipping but have been just dribbling out of Australia. Um, and massive backlog of orders and people who've gotten them have had some frustrating build quality issues and other issues as well. Um, and also finding again, that that workflow is, is rather challenging. Um, what's the problem with the workflow? Well, okay. The big things I've heard are one DNG is not particularly pleasant to work with. File sizes are massive. Um, but also but you can shoot direct to ProRes, can't you? You can, but if you're doing that, then why get, why not get a different camera? I mean, you know, a different two th- two and a half thousand dollar camera that can shoot to a real codec. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is that people are buying these things and being like, "Oh my god, I can't lose any bits," and then complaining about the well, file size because it makes because you want to have the raw for pushing and pulling and all that. Like you know, if, if right, and so buy some drives. Yeah. But but it's also it's not just the the file size it's that just DNG in general the workflows on the post side are not particularly great um, at least you know if you're working with the traditional Final Cut X or or Premiere or whatever there's a lot of pre processing and it just seems pretty fiddly um, you know but but also yeah it's not compressed um, and since the camera only records to SSDs that gets pretty spendy um, but the other the other big issue is that it's got an internal battery. Um, that isn't user swappable and so, and it doesn't last very long. And so then you need to have sort of fairly complicated external power solutions, um, from third parties to use it in any real way on a shoot, um, which adds to your costs and, you know, but it also seems like the, the firmware is just not really mature and, and everything. But the, the bigger issue is that a lot of people want them and can't get them. Um, and so we'll throw a link to the show notes in the show notes to this article or this forum post from black magic about what's going on um have you looked at this yeah this i so i mean i guess they've been doing the same thing for a bunch of years now and so maybe they haven't had to do much in the way of shopping around for new manufacturers in shenzhen but it just seems like they 
dropped the ball pretty good on this one. Yeah, I mean it's an it's an interesting situation because my my take is maybe that the complexity ramp that from building cards and boxes to building a camera is just much steeper than they thought. Um, well, it's it, there's obviously that. But but just on the manufacturing side, um I would guess that their partners, their manufacturing partners, are also somewhat surprised about that, that, you know, a lot of the issues they're running into seem to have to do with quality control and cleanliness and um, the sorts of things that don't really matter, excuse me, if you're just doing pick and pluck of chips on PCBs, but start to matter when you need to have optical quality. Yeah, I mean, I don't understand how they end up contracting out to a CCD fab that doesn't know that they can't have dust ever like well and it seems like it's a complicated set of you know we get the ccds from one place and then they're right then they bond it to glass right i mean it it is also interesting to have the revelation that the ccds they're getting are coming out of the scientific imaging space or um you know they're not ccds traditionally used for image acquisition in the real world and so you know, part of the issue is that they're having to put the glass on the front of the CCD so that they can use a traditional lens on it, whereas normally the CCD would be bonded directly to the lens. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't really understand. I mean, my the way I read that, and it's been a while since I've looked at this, was that not that the CCD is not used this way. It's that the company they hired only does much more rinky-dink sort of builds, usually. I, th- I think it was uh, a combination that they're the first people using this this particular CCD in a more traditional camera, um, the, and also that the yeah. assembly process is not is just not going well, and, and it also seems like it's taken them a very long time to identify what their issues are, which is very strange. Like, they, they haven't had people on the ground in China um, at least not enough people or the right people. Um, and they've been going back and forth with these sort of long cycles between identify an issue, contact the supplier. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, this sounds remarkably familiar. I mean, and that's why there's a factory here in California now that makes red cameras. Right. I mean, do you think that Black Magic has missed the window on this at this point, or missed the window to be able to fix it? No, I mean, look how long it took Red—two years before they could ship a camera at any decent volume. Um, I mean, people will wait, and/or they'll have to change. You know, they can always just start shipping version two before they ever get around to fulfilling orders for version one. Um, it's not like they're, you know, when you're not shipping any, it's not like you're locked to the specs you advertised. Right, right. Yeah, I kind of... Yeah, I mean, I think the bigger problem is that just... I don't know. I mean, this, you know, this comes up a lot with Kickstarter and stuff, too. Like, people tend to... There's a lot of people that assume that, like, the only way to make anything anymore is to farm it out to China... And one, that belies the fact that most stuff is made in America still. And two, that it's just, you you can save increment, you know, you can save fractional pennies on your device if you move, if you fire everyone and move the process to China. 
that is different than saying like, well, everyone else who's been doing this for 20 years is in China. We need to do that too. Right. Like as a startup, you're never going to have the cost, you know, you're never going to build cheaper than someone who's already at scale. And when you add in the complexity of doing something in a country, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, I, I, it seems like they would have been much better served by doing this down the street somewhere in Perth. Well, and it seems like, I mean, the, the bigger issue, and I'm just sort of shocked because I, I guess I don't know what kind of volume black magic churns, but I assume they ship a fair number of units just in pure, you know, unit count terms, uh, across all of their different product lines. And it seems strange to me that they don't have, or, or seemingly don't have any big regional headquarters in, you know, Shenzhen, you know, with black magic staff sort of hanging out and monitoring production and able to deal with these things on the spot. Like, well, I mean, I think, you know, I think it's an issue where they started this somewhere else and they've moved the stuff over there over the years after all the problems were solved and they just didn't need the staff. Like, I mean, most of what they're doing is changing the number of connectors on the back of their cards and switching out firmware Mm -hmm. at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, well, and also just you can the, send that PCB layout to the factory that's already doing your stuff, and chances are they can get that right. Right. I, but I think it's also when we get back to looking at that this complexity curve that you know having that finding someone who can get a PCB, you know, PC, PCB is made somewhere else. It's brought in, chips are brought in, and someone is doing pick and pluck and then testing solder, essentially testing solder points. You know, that a lot of that is much more mature in terms of manufacturing automation and, um, you know, quality control was easier because it's all sort of, there's no qualitative analysis you have to do. Like the issues they're running into are visible dust, um, which is harder to test for. Well, I mean, they make, I mean, anyone who does this has test benches to test all that on. Yeah. Like you automate, you mean that's automated testing too. And it sounds like from their posts that they just, forgot to do that in color yeah (laughs) you know like the company was doing automated testing but it was in grayscale Mm -hmm. there's a great book um i think i probably mentioned before called uh, poorly made in china that's all about outsourcing manufacturing to china um from a really on the ground perspective written by a guy whose job is to act as a go-between for american companies outsourcing to china sure um and talking about some of the ups and downs that they encounter but you know, it's definitely like you were saying, and I guess we can jump into the digi bullock side of things. Um, you know, f- especially for a small firm getting started, um, we're so used to, I think, you know, we're, we're used to this idea that we sort of go online and find someone and, and you can sort of place your order online and, you know, from the Amazon of, of camera manufacturers and get your product back. And the reality is that it's much more involved and much more hands-on than I think, um, you know, product designers are used to if, if you haven't had to deal with the manufacturing side before. Yeah. I mean, you end up basically, you're like going into business. You're right. forming a partnership with some company that you're probably never going to meet. <laughs> right. But I mean, I think we've seen with, with Kickstarter, these people who, you know, you build something awesome in, you know, AutoCAD or, or whatever, and you send it off to Shapeways and get a few made and you do all that online and the box shows up five days later and, and you can do your cool Kickstarter video. But then you sort of assume that the ramp is going to be that easy as well. Um, 
And right. Yeah, I mean, and this has to this has to be a problem that's being solved. Like at this point, there are so many dumb people with wads more money than they've ever had trying to do this right now because of things like Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. That there has to be companies popping up that are going to make this easier in time. Yeah. Um. You know, especially when you consider that most of the people doing these sort of things now, like they don't, they're not really tied to anything because they're not, you know, they're amateur product designers and engineers, anyways. And so, if there's a company, you know, if there's like a Chinese version of IDEO in China that you send your thing to and say, here's what it looks like now. And they send it back and say, here's how we make it for 30 cents less. Look at the different design changes we made. You right. go great. Well, I, I mean, that is, it gets us into digi bollocks, I think, which is, um, okay. I haven't followed this at all. I'm willing to admit that. So the only time I ever think about digi bollocks is when we talk about it on the podcast, because I think it's a joke. It is a joke. Um, more or less. I mean, the the only reason I think it jumped back on my radar this week is because Philip Bloom was taking some heat for, um, I don't even know what, I, I guess for defending them, but it seems like he's in the same situation and that he put his own money into buying one as well. It was a, I don't remember if they were a Kickstarter or one of the Kickstarter likes Indiegogo maybe, uh, a Kickstarter project for from some hipsters who wanted to build a bolex style camera um 16 mil style camera that shoots just raw um and they were going to do it for two thousand dollars or twenty five hundred dollars or something um and again the idea was well we just get a sensor and some pretty simple electronics and write all the raw data to a drive and then we do all of the processing and software in on the computer um to try and shift all the complexity into you know high level languages on a computer and not have to worry about fancy fpgas and things in the in the camera um so fine idea they they hit the market a few months or they uh, revealed themselves a few months before the black magic cinema camera when the black magic cinema camera came out i think a lot of people wrote off digi bullocks right away because uh you know, here's a real company building a real camera uh, that does a lot of the same things. Now, obviously, mm. as we've just discussed, they've had some issues as well. But the DigiBolics people are even even further behind. They've missed their their ship dates repeatedly, um, and are still pretty early. It seems like in in design um, and running into basic issues like, you know, we we had a circuit board made and it doesn't fit inside our enclosure, um, and you know, our FPGA programmer quit or yeah, you know, all sorts of issues. Um, you know, I think there's real question as to whether they'll ever ship a usable product. Um, yeah, I mean, so when, where are they at? So they, how many, um, how much money did they raise? Um, I'm not remembering. I want to say something like three quarters of a million, but let's see. Oh, so is this going to be the first really big? Oh no, a quarter million, two hundred sixty thousand dollars. Yeah. Is this going to be the first really big Kickstarter flame out? Um, I mean, where if nothing else, people like are going to lose large chunks of money, not twenty bucks or a hundred bucks or something. Yeah, I think probably there've been a few others. There was, um, and I'm not remembering the name of it, but there was a project to do a set of glasses that would record the world around you, um, and they were. 
you're supposed to be pretty elegant and everything. They'd never actually existed, and it seems like it was pretty much a take-the-money-and-run scam, but people put in a fair amount of money to get those. Probably not as much as this one, though. Um, so, yeah, this one... And again, they may they may end up shipping something, but at this point, I mean, it was always pretty unlikely that they were going to ship a camera you'd actually want to use on a set. Um, you know, at this point, I would kind of doubt they're going to ship a camera that you could even realistically attempt to use on a set. They'll probably ship, you know. Well, that was never the point. I mean, it wasn't going to be. It was a Bolex. I mean, it was always twee. Right. Not usable. Like, yeah, it's like bringing the Furby back. Yeah. Um, in any case, you know, they're, they're, they, they've done a number of posts, and we can link to one. Um, you know, they've brought in some product management people and some other, other expert-type people at this point, which is uh, probably something they should have done from the beginning and probably a good lesson for any of these Kickstarter projects that end up blowing away their funding goals is use a big chunk of that money to hire someone who can shepherd this project through the process so that you don't have to learn all of it. Um, and, and, you know, they, they may have just realized that a bit too late. Um, right. I mean, it's also, they probably were optimistic about their pricing to begin with. Right. For such a small build quantity. And so, you know, they were being cheap because they wanted to not lose money on the process, which makes sense. But, and I suspect with many Kickstarter hardware projects, you know, even when you sort of, yeah, the, I would bet most people, if they end up building anything, are ending up building things at a loss. Um, but yeah, I mean, the the best that you can hope for with the project like this, if you go in and make a Kickstarter for it, is that you cover the majority of your R and D. Yeah. And then come out the other side with a product that you can sell <laughs> and make money then and have less, you know, less debt. Right. I mean, um, but so I don't think a lot of people go into this thinking that maybe they do. I don't know. I can't speak for them, but well, and, and you know, one of the things Kickstarter has been trying to do, um, is for example, they've started saying you can't, um, you can't show in your Kickstarter project, you can't show renderings that make the product look like it's a real thing. Um, you can't sort of create videos where right. you can show pencil it. drawings or you can show the first one that you built. Right. And you can show CAD and sort of things like that, but you can't do what a lot of people were doing, which is, you know, after effects and everything else to composite right. in 3d, you know, make it look like people are actually using working versions of your product. Right. Um, and, and leave that open. I mean, when I look at the various Kickstarter projects I've funded, um, most of which I have not received anything for, let me just pull up my list here. Yeah, I was. We should turn this into a general conversation about this new economy. Yeah. So, of the things I've put meaningful money into, because I've you know funded books and CDs and things, but that that's just sort of whatever. Um, there are three hardware projects, I think, that, that succeeded um, that I have not received. So one is the Nifty Mini Drive, which you also backed. Yeah, you conned me into that. Um, one, it doesn't even fit in my computer. One is the Pebble e-paper watch. And one oh, is, that, I mean, 
You're out of luck on that one entirely, right? No. Oh, no, wait. That's not the one that needs the Nano. Right. Um, and one is the ZPM Espresso Maker. Hmm. So, of those, um, I would say it's probably about 95% certain that the nifty mini drive people are going to ship something. Yeah, they seem, they're on the ball. Um, and about 90, 90% on Pebble, and then maybe 70% on the espresso machine. So nifty. You're that optimistic about an espresso machine? Eh, maybe 50. <laughs> I'm going to. We'll get to that one. I'll bet that spread. That one's an interesting. Uh, an interesting I'm going case. for 20. So the, the Nifty Mini Drive, if you don't know this project, we'll throw a link in, but it's a pretty simple thing. It's a little um, SD card-sized thing that goes in the SD card slot on your MacBook or MacBook Pro. Inside of it, you put a micro SD card or nano SD card or whatever they're called. Um, and so it's essentially just a permanent SD card inside your computer. The idea is that it sits flush and Right. A like regular it. SD card sticks out the side, so you have to take it out or it's going to snap off in there. Right. And so this is a way to add... This one fits entirely inside the half of the slot that no, the normal card would sit in. Right. And it's it a way to add, you there. know, 64 gigs right now and, and soon 128 gigs of storage to your, to your laptop without a huge amount of cost and without having to carry anything around. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's a relatively easy project. They're basically just plumbing the connection around and building an enclosure. Um, and they have a chance to sort of upsell people on the cards and make a little money there. They can buy the cards in giant bulk and sell them to people. Like this one seems like it's totally going to happen and they're probably not going to fleece themselves in the process. Right. And so they've, they've also been good about documenting their process. And so I think there's some things we can learn from their process. Um, because again, it is a, a fairly simple device, but they... They blew away their funding goal. They were looking for $11,000, and they ended up raising $380,000. Um, so they had to manufacture these in a pretty dramatically different scale. Um, they were originally targeting November ship, and they've you know, acknowledged they're not going to reach that, but they're probably going to. Yeah, I don't think they're going to make that. They're, they're going to make December probably, they say. Um, and... You know, you can, and we'll link to their updates. Um, they've had people in China for quite a while working on this, and they've run into the sorts of things that we were alluding to, like, you know, manufacturing tolerance issues, having color of aluminum anodization matching, uh, having PCBs that are, you know, a fraction of a millimeter too big to fit in an enclosure, and, you know, all these sorts of things where it's meant that they've had to do multiple products passes of iteration um and you know redo tooling and all of these things um that people just don't seem to build into their kickstarter timelines or their kickstarter budgets right um yeah you sent me a really good book by the guys who did the glyph oh yeah we should definitely uh call that Let's out link it's to that called, that was uh, good um it will be it will be amazing it'll be amazing sort of i don't remember who was yeah, so I my newest Kickstarter thing is I backed that Smart Duino, which, which closed this week. Smart Duino. It's been a big thing. It was Arduino. It will be, and it's um, it's like a new Arduino that has a bus on it, a sort of dedicated addressable bus. The idea being that you know you buy Arduinos and then you actually have to know enough 
electrical engineering to get things plumbed together without, you know. So usually you can attach like one shield to an Arduino before everything goes to hell right. with pinouts and stuff. And then you have to deal with mucking with everything. And so this is an entirely um, addressable digital and analog bus. You can say like, I want to put this on channel four. And then you just plug everything together on one backplane, basically. And then in the SDK, you're just like, my GPS unit is on channel three. Oh, cool. And it all it's all pluggable, and they've come up with, like, simple doohickeys to connect everything. Um, and so it's really neat. The, the issue came up because, and I'm looking at the Kickstarter page now, and I think they've gone back and re-jiggered their wording. Because the way I read it and the way a lot of people read it was that the guy who created Arduino was doing this. And what it turned out to be is a guy, um, some of the people in this group now are people who worked for manufacturers that made Arduino. Um, And so... It's gotten one hundred and sixty thousand dollars, and the guy—they're currently being sued by Arduino for trademark infringement, and um, I don't know, libel or something. Hmm. So it's been interesting. And have they sort of spoken as to whether they're still planning to ship or they're going to... Yeah, they're still going to ship. They're ignoring the trademark thing. They claim they never said they did that. Hmm. Um, Yeah. So it'll be interesting. Um, There's been some wired coverage of it and a couple other things, but it's... um, Interesting. You know, so it's, um, yeah, that combined with the fact that the guy writes way too many product updates, like three a day. Yeah. It's getting annoying. I'm ready to unfriend him. (laughs) Can you stop getting updates on a project? I think so. After you've given him your money? Yeah, I think so. Or can you pull your money? I didn't even know about these things. But anyways, yeah. I mean, it looks like they're probably going to get made but mm. and shipped, but it's sort of annoying. Well, the you know the next one on my list of of maybes is the the Pebble Watch, which was one of the bigger Kickstarters ever. They went from they were looking for a hundred grand, they raised ten million. Um, How much did they raise? Ten million. One million. Ten million. Ten million. Yeah. Wow. Um. They were originally going to ship in September, and these are guys who had built various smartwatches before. Um, they already had a company, and they already had some of the manufacturing expertise. They had, yeah, they had built one for RIM, right? Right. Um, and they're now in design verification, sort of end of November. Um, but again, it's been an interesting thing to watch because they've not only had to deal with the enclosure manufacturer and the lens for the front of the watch, you know, the clear plastic, the acrylic, whatever it is, um, sort of miniaturized electronics. Um, they've had to deal with FCC and all of the things because it's got Bluetooth. Um, 
and they've got a whole software side of things um, that is, is I think, further behind. I suspect when these watches go out, um, they will be pretty watches going to tell the time that don't, yeah, don't actually do anything. Um, but you know, again, this case of all of the little things you need to deal with um, that they did not budget for, even though this was a company that had built these before. Um, right. I mean, you got to schedule some time for like picking out. And decorating a yacht, right, right, that's in there. And there's the you know vacation homes. So a lot of people don't you know plan for how long that's going to take. Yeah, Can ten million. Yeah, that's not a small amount of money. No. And yet, how many do they have to ship? Eighty-five thousand. Oh God. Um. Finally, the ZPM espresso machine, uh, which <laughs> I think, let me see here. Originally, it was supposed to ship in March of 2012. Um, we're not really talking about when it's going to ship at this point. We're just talking about like, man, did you know that you're not supposed to put power next to water? Right. I mean, they, again, are at, you know, are dealing with all of these things that you would think you would have thought through earlier on in the process, like, you know, yeah, we need to run high pressure, high temperature steam next to electronics and, oh, that's going to require some insulation or, you know, um, dealing with all of the programming and control for this, dealing with actually fitting it inside their enclosure. Um, but also they're dealing with, and again, this gets back to this idea of outsourcing manufacturing. They built a working test bench version early on. Um, but when they went to outsource production of their thermal block, um, for actually, you know, moving these, you know, heating and moving around this water, um, their Chinese manufacturing partner used a slightly different aluminum alloy or some such. They, I don't know that they tracked down exactly what went on and, and it was flexing then under pressure. Um, and they had to go through multiple iterations to try and explain that, you know, it's really important that you use this particular, um, aluminum that we've picked out and, and, you know, then you have to go and have it, it reforged or, or whatever. And, and it's, I thought they had a problem with milling versus casting. Well, originally it was milled, but because of the, the volume they ended up needing to do, it's now going to be cast. Um, right. But then the casting was you know done out of the wrong material or they picked the wrong material from the beginning and blamed it on getting the wrong material from their partner. That's not clear, I guess. Right. Um, and casting is a lot less precise. Right. Um, they've also lost, you know, people they'd contracted for. And so they've had to go back to the drawing board on some of those things. And, but it's, it's definitely in terms of complexity, um, because it's much more mechanical and physical and dealing with, you know, water and steam and heat and pressure and, um, a much more complicated process. Um, and they've, they've finally in September, um, so, you know, a good five months past, six months past their their original ship date. In in September, they finally sent one of their guys over to, to China to be hands-on, um, but they were mm-hmm. trying to do this without any hands-on in the manufacturing process um, up until this point. Um, so, I mean, what do you think? I, I You know, it seems so like we're it, in a lull right now. It seems to me that this is like... This all sounds really, really familiar to me. And that is like there is this uh, naivete or um, 
I don't, uh, I don't know what it is. It's like, so, yeah, I mean, the adage in software is, you know, the first 80% is a lot easier than the second and the third 80% right. that you have to put into a project. Um, and, you know, it's just, it seems like, yeah, people always underestimate how hard it is to make something. And people assume that proof of concept gets you most of the way to completion, when in reality, it's proof of concept is the thing you do the first day and <laughs> to decide if you really want to get into this. But then you have to do another year of work yeah. to get it ready for consumers. And I mean, I guess, you know, like, you know, so we've gone through this for years and years and years in software. And I guess, you know, now people have the uh, ability to do it with hardware too. Yeah. Well, and I, I hate to be too cynical about it because I think it is awesome that, you know, we're at... No, I mean, it's hour. great, but like, yeah, I mean, it's no different than... But I mean, you know, we are at the point in this new economy where everyone, whether or not they're going to be successful, is that dick at a dinner party who tells you about their iPhone app idea. Yes. Every single one of them. Like, if you have a Kickstarter page, you have... There's a 99% chance you have no idea what you're getting yourself into. Right. Unless you're making a documentary or a book or, you know, a painting or something. Absolutely. Like those are, but if you're in the hardware section, you're probably going to hate, you're, you know, you're not going to get out of what you think out of this. Yeah. Well, Either money or sleep or anything. And it's great, you know, like that's true of anyone who starts a business. Yeah. I've definitely noticed even in this sort of year that I, years, 18 months that I've been sort of keeping an eye on Kickstarter, um, there's been a pretty significant drop off in the number of hardware projects and in the ambitiousness of them, as I think people are learning some of these lessons and Kickstarter has gotten more serious about vetting projects, I think. Um, yeah. Whatever happened to that electric airplane? I don't know. That was a good one. <laughs> um, and, you know, well, again, I don't want to be too cynical about it. Um, and, and I also look at, you know, what's going on in the, I hate to use the language of sort of the real world of manufacturing or whatever, but um, when you think about big companies being backed by traditional funding sources, how about that? Um, and you look at, in the automotive space, you've got Fisker and Tesla, which are both companies trying to build cars um, and are sort of, in, in a lot of cases, dealing with all of the little things that go into building a car successfully. And, and you've seen how, how painful that process has been for both of these companies. Tesla's through the worst of it now, I think. Um, Fisker, not so much. Um, but, you know, it's such a big jump from a guy building a kit car in his garage, you know, from scratch to making a car where the button for the windows works a thousand times or a hundred thousand times, you know? Right. In every car. Yeah. Ever in make. every climate, you know, in every situation, even after a diet Coke's been spilled on it. Right. Um, and I think, yeah, we, especially from the software side of things, um, and from the sort of, uh, more cerebral side of things. We are so used to, um, that ramp up being easier and, um, you know, people then jump into this hardware manufacturing and find out just how painful it is. I don't envy them and I'm, you know, rooting for them, but 
I don't know. Right. I mean, it's never going to get easy. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, saying that this is happening doesn't mean it shouldn't happen. I mean, and the same is true for the big guys. But the big guys have billions of dollars to blow in this crap. Like, you just have to be realistic about it. But not too not too realistic because then you'll never start. Um, but, yeah, I mean... You know, and you, you were saying software, but even some, I mean, people have these unreasonable expectations about everything they make. Absolutely. I mean, I would guess the majority of the software Kickstarters aren't getting finished either. Yeah, I think that's probably accurate. It's just, it's really easy to make something that works well enough for you to be like, awesome, look at this thing I made. And, you know, there's, there's all, you know, There's an advantage, there's a sort of joy of doing these things as hobbies that disappears when you do them as businesses. Mm -hmm. Because it's, you know, it's the, you know, when you're making a product, 50% of your time is much less than 50% of the time is making the product. Much less, no matter what it is. Like tech support and manuals and you know we can get into hardware like underwriter labs and rojas and all that like there's just so much stuff that isn't the part that you were like this is going to be so much fun well look i made one and now i'm going to make it better like that is that's what you do after the day ends in in your new business like you spend all day dicking with paperwork and then at night, you go back to doing the thing that you used to do at night in your old job, which was making this thing and making it a little better than it was yesterday. Well, and, and Kickstarter, I think, makes things even worse because, you know, by by the very virtue of how it works, it puts these timelines in place after the product's been announced, um, whereas you don't, you don't get to work on it and release it when it's done Um and sort of, you know, stay quiet about it the way we can with software when we're developing it internally and we only announce it after it's ready. Um, you know, Kickstarter, because you have to have a product, have an idea at least, and get people to give you money and tell them when they're going to get a result, um, you know, I think it makes the process even more painful in a lot of ways. Yeah, but I mean, it, it's a trade-off because I mean, it also means you get to not starve to death absolutely i mean that's what i'm saying by virtue of how it works like it it, you know these projects wouldn't be possible without that funding up front and a lot of them wouldn't have any other routes for funding through traditional means but um you know we it it, you know on the software side of things when we're doing stuff internally we don't have to ship according to someone else's schedule and we don't have to deal with disappointed customers waiting for software to ship if we haven't told them that the software even exists for you know right and i mean you know, any like it may. I guess some people may not intuit it, but like we have written more than two applications. Yes, <laughs> they just no one ever got a copy of them because they sucked, and we were like, "Fuck it!" Like the whole first, like when I quit my day job and started programming full time, I wrote an app that never shipped, never once. The only thing that you can find, like, if you went to one NAB, you might have a postcard of the icon from the app. Yeah. And that's all that exists in the world. I don't even think I have a copy of it anymore. 
And that's, you certainly couldn't compile you know, it even if you wanted to. It's, you know, it's, it would be, it would, you know, I'm kind of glad I didn't take $200,000. Right. Because <laughs> that would have gone poorly. Yeah, I mean, I almost wonder if Kickstarter at some point, you know, if too many of these projects fail, obviously people aren't going to be interested in getting on board. Um, well, and not to mention there's the there's the slight issue with the fact that this is kind of illegal, too. Um, I mean, it wouldn't be hard for the SEC to claim that these are investments and investments where you don't stand a good chance of regaining your initial investment. You can't you're not allowed to invest in them unless you're rich, mm-hmm. like schedule C right. investments. I mean, now there's some law. I don't, did it go through yeah. or is it yeah, just in the works right now? It says you it can blow 2000 of your own money every year yeah. on a non-regulated investment. But yeah, but I mean, you know, if enough of these go South Kickstarter, it could probably get in some trouble. <laughs> well, and also I think it's just, yeah, I mean, they need people to believe that it's all yeah, I mean, it's out. a brand, too. Like, So I, I do wonder if at some point, because, um, you know, Kickstarter takes a cut of all of this, so they're making their money regardless of whether projects succeed or not. Um, I wonder if we'll get to a point where Kickstarter will have some sort of bailout fund to, you know, if a project completely fails, refund their customers, which are you and me. Um, right. E- even though they can't necessarily reclaim the money from the people who used it to try and build a product ostensibly. Right. I don't know. I mean, obviously that would be a pretty painful step for them to have to take. Um, but it yeah, I mean, I point. think it would be more likely, I mean, I don't think Kickstarter can do much, but I could imagine a niche for other, I mean, it could get to the point where it's just too prohibitive for Kickstarter to do these sort of projects that have a high chance of failure. Mm-hmm. You know, basically, you know, the stuff that we're focused on, the hardware stuff, um, and do more of the, you know, like funding plays and documentaries and stuff. Because that seems like a pretty reasonable thing. If for no other reason than the people aren't really expecting to get something at the end other than a new object in the world. Like there's not like... The problem with the hardware stuff is there's this, like, I'm buying this thing. And, you know, I think that's how a lot of people think of it. Like, ah, $2,500 for a camera. Like, great. Yeah. You know, and they think it's kind of like going on Amazon. Um, But I could imagine, like, there being enough room. You know, if if Kickstarter gets tarnished enough by these, there's a business opportunity for someone else to come along that has a business model close. I mean, I guess there's that. What's the name of that company that does sort of you pitch your idea and people vote on it oh, and then they sort of handle a large portion of the sort of implementation. Yep. Yeah. Quirky. Yeah. Quirky. I mean, I could see something, a model closer to that, some sort of hybrid of the two where you buy the thing ahead of time, but but it's the company that's taking 30% is going to shepherd the project through most of the process. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely think if Kickstarter is going to keep you know, stay in this hardware space, they need to 
be providing more support throughout the process or, or, you know, requiring that hardware projects dedicate some percent of their funding to paying for a project manager or, or something like that. I mean, uh, there's also, there's, you know, there's no reason why someone can't come up with insurance for this too. Yeah. I mean, that's what I was going to get to. Like you can't realistically sort of do this as an escrow model because the whole point is that you need the cash, you need the money. But I mean, this is standard business liability error and emissions. Like, you know, like, whoops, we we came up with a bad idea and we lost money. Like, there's insurance already that covers that, and mm-hmm. Kickstarter could take a larger cut of your money and buy that insurance for you, with the idea that you know they're buying it in a pool where, you know. The underwriters, I guess, would have some say in what the terms were for you to get listed on the site and things. Yeah. I don't know. It's going to be interesting to watch. I think in a 2013 will be a big year for Kickstarter, either you know pro or con. Um, and they're already doing great. Sounds like financially. Yeah, but you know, a lot of the the big projects that are responsible for an you know overweight share of their income are projects that have not gone well. Um, yeah, and so or are still in limbo. Right. If those start to blow up publicly, I think that the tide could turn pretty quickly because Kickstarter isn't making their money off of a bunch of thousand dollar, you know, C D funding. You know? Yeah. Um, that's true. And so if that if those projects either stop getting created or start fleeing to another site, um, they could see things evaporate pretty quickly. So we will see. Um yeah, but if you guys want to kickstart our next project, yeah, um, just go on the website and buy one of each of our applications. Yeah, and we will use that money to make the next thing. <laughs> you can buy more than one, actually. We have volume discounts as well. Get yeah, that's that's our business model. Yeah, we we sell software for money, and hope to sell enough. It's so old fashioned to pay for our food. Can't we do like some sort of forex thing with it? Um, well, we kind of are with, through the app store. We're just always losing. <laughs> yeah. Oh well. Um, chatter. That's eh, pretty much. Oh, um, did you look oh, at that marker? This facial con- tracking with Connect thing. Nah. Whatever. Yeah, we can talk about it another time. Or probably not. My chatter is uh, a link to an Engadget video about a paper out of IBM. Uh, IBM's got a project underway where they're simulating, um, in this case, 530 million neurons and the related synapses to connect them, um, and actually doing stuff, like having those neurons doing tasks. Um, And the paper goes into depth about how they're actually simulating at scale this this, um, size of a a brain, for lack of a better word. and they're running about 1,500 times slower than a real-life brain. Um, and, you know, their goal is to get up to the point of simulating a full actual brain with all of the, you know, neurons and uh, running at full speed. And I think it, it's a cool video. It's a cool paper. Um, this is one of those spaces where I kind of feel like in my lifetime we will succeed at this, and I think it's going to be really interesting. Um to see what happens when you sort of model a the mechanics of the brain like this? Yeah, I mean, it gets... I just... 
so how are they training it? I haven't watched the video, but... I don't really know what kind of sort of programming training they're doing on this at this point. The, the, the project is mostly about the way they're actually scaling the simulation and not so much about sure what's behind you know they show it doing stuff but they don't really talk about how they programmed it to do those things crowd students um (laughs) but yeah it's it's an interesting thing and and uh again i will be curious to see where this is and you know because when you think about that they're running they're running 1500 times slower than real life but when you think about moore's law and you know some of the other you know Obviously, they're still at the the, the spa- at the point where there's a lot of speed up opportunity just in better algorithms and everything else. But even when you just think about Moore's law over our lifetimes, um, you know that gets you down quite a bit towards real time performance. Yeah. So it's exciting. Then I mean, I don't I mean. I guess at some point you might want to just replace people but it's also i mean it doesn't have to run at real time in order for us to get a lot of insight into absolutely our own brains which it seems like is a large part of what this is is absolutely being able to model art not to make a better culture right um but yeah it's yeah i mean it'll be interesting it's it's interesting that we're back to neural networks again like they sort of went out of fashion what, yeah, with the well, ascendancy for, of Google and the big data and the, yeah, for that sort of know, problem solving, Markov models and whatnot. Yeah, and just also with you know, yeah, as you say, with big data and distributed computing and uh, the ability to throw power at problems in a different way. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, my chatter is the fact that XOXO Fest, which I guess has some Kickstarter ties in. Um, they released videos of everything, all of their sessions. And so they're worth checking out. I haven't looked at any yet, but yeah, I mean, the conference itself was supposed to be really good. And so I'm interested to watch some of these. Yeah, at some point we'll have to do a show talking about some of these new conferences because there have been some good articles about um, these conferences and, you know, XOXO and Singleton and... Uh, yeah. A SimConf and yeah, it's an interesting model. It's sort of like bands getting into selling hot sauce. Bands do bands sell hot sauce? Yeah, that's a new thing. Um, you know, I, hot sauce is one particular example, but um, as you know, the business model for being a band has changed to things like making your money off of shows and off of merchandise and um, off of other experiences and things, and rather than off of moving. Um, product uh, moving CDs, um, you know. I think this idea they're of, just slap. They're basically just selling their brand now. Yeah, well, and and it's not. Makes so, sense. I wouldn't say it's selling your brand. It's selling that being part of that community. Um, but that's what's selling a brand. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess. I guess. But it's not that you buy the hot sauce because you want to show that you're a cool fan of this band. It's sort of you're supporting the band and sort of sharing the experience of eating the hot sauce with the band. And um, I don't know. Again, it's probably a deeper subject than we can get into right this moment. But I, I see conferences as, the, you know, in the way they're being used as both a um, communal coming together, networking, and fundraising in some cases um, as just an interesting you know, yeah. 
development. It's also it's just a it's a backlash against the sh- shitty vacation conferences of the old days. Yes. You know, and like there was a long time when conferences were mostly for you know, getting your company to pay for you to travel and you didn't even go and you didn't really care. Right. Um, and these seem to be like people actually want to learn stuff and actually want to, you know, meet and talk to people and conference organizers who aren't, you know, as cynical and actually want to provide an experience for people. Absolutely. Yeah. Which is good. I mean, you know, it's an upstart thing. Yep. Little guys care more. This that tends to be true. Mostly true. Yes. All right. Talk to you soon. Adios.